0: This morning, I'd like you to uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 2, and we're doing just a little study um, in the few weeks that we have before the new pastor comes, and I'm excited about that and praying for that whole situation. But until then, I'm doing what I really love to do in preaching, is teach through books of the Bible, just expositorily kind of go through the Word of God because I've discovered that it's absolutely true that God's Word does not return void. And sometimes it doesn't matter what the vessel is like or even how great the message is, but when you get God's Word out there, it makes a difference in our lives. And if you want to keep track of where we're headed, you can take out the outline that's in your bulletin today and just follow and fill in some of the blanks. But like you to keep your Bibles open, if you would, to James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. It seems that if you put the word real in front of anything these days, it sells more. I mean, think about it. Real coffee. Real leather. Real housewives of Orange County. It goes on and on. And, and, you know, we're interested in the genuine article. There was a TV show on years ago called Real People. And there's a book out, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche, and Coke used to be called The Real Thing. And so this morning, I I want us to take a look at what James has to say about how to have real faith. There are a lot of phony religions out there today, and a lot of people who think they're Christians, but they really aren't. And in this passage, James talks about the difference between real and counterfeit Christians. Authentic believers and fake believers. And he talks about how you can know that you know that you have real faith. So this morning, as we look at this passage, we need to understand that this is probably the most controversial and misunderstood passage in the book of James. Every cult misunderstands it, and they use it to try to prove that you can earn your way into heaven. And it's important that you get what I'm going to share with you this morning, that we understand this, so that when those guys come knocking at your door, you know how to respond to them. The entire New Testament, let me say that again, the entire New Testament teaches that we are saved by faith alone. The Apostle Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith and faith alone. But then James comes along, as we'll see today, and he says, well, it's not just faith, but faith and works. And we have to ask, well, what in the world is he talking about? Do we pick James or Paul? The truth is, they're both right. They're talking about different things. Paul was fighting the problem of legalism, the problem of I've got to keep all the Jewish laws and traditions and regulations if I'm really going to be a Christian. Paul was addressing that group. But James isn't fighting with legalism. He's dealing with laxity. Those who say, well, it really doesn't matter what you do. You can do anything as long as you believe. Well, it's totally different. It's different sides of the same coin, so to speak. It's not either or, but both and. Paul focuses on the root of salvation. What happens to me internally? While James focuses on the fruit of salvation. What happens on the outside? Paul is talking about how to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're a Christian. And James is talking about how to show that you're a Christian. Paul's talking about faith alone and how to become a believer, and James talks about how to behave like a believer once you've accepted Christ into your life. In fact, Paul kind of sums it up in in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He says, For by grace are you saved through faith for a life of good works that God has already prepared us to do. There are three prepositions in that passage, by grace, through faith, for good works. And if you get those out of sync, you're in trouble. If you think you're saved by work for faith, you've got a problem. But he's saying we're saved by grace through faith for good works. In other words, we're saved totally by faith. That's it, bottom line, saved by faith, but for the purpose of doing good works. And I don't want to just spend a lot of our time dealing with this one concept at all, but... Suffice it to say that James and Paul don't really contradict each other. They complement each other. And we'll get a glimpse of this today as we go through this passage. There are three things that he shares, and I want us to jump in right now. And the first thing I want you to catch, there are two kinds of faith. There are two kinds of faith. First of all, there's a do-nothing kind of faith. And then there's a do-something kind of faith. And that's pretty self-explanatory. It doesn't take a lot to figure that out. Do-nothing faith is exactly what it sounds like. It's faith disconnected from any type of behavior or corresponding action to what you say you believe. It's faith in the sense that it's intellectual, and it can even be emotional belief, but it only exists in your thoughts and in your feelings. It's never put into practice in your life. And James tells us, amazingly, who has this kind of faith. And he's kind of extreme in his example, but look at verse 19. He says, you believe there is one God, well, good for you, you do well. Even the demons believe, he says, and they tremble. Well, friends, the demons are not atheists in any sense of the word. They absolutely believe in God. James says, even the demons have intellectual faith. They even have emotional faith, but it's a do-nothing faith because it doesn't lead to any kind of corresponding reaction or action. Let me give you an example outside of the spiritual realm because we all have some do-nothing faith in our life and we all have some do-something faith in our life. Here's one, your car. Everyone who owns a car, whether they know it or not, believes in, in the technology that makes the automobile work, the internal combustion engine. But some of us have a do-nothing faith about it, while others have a do-something faith about it. For example, people know that you need to change your oil every 3,000 to 5,000 miles. They believe it. There's a mountain of evidence to show that you need to do that. And they have no doubt whatsoever that it's true. But they still don't get their oil changed. And they know that that funny knocking sound in their engine, well, that's, there's a problem there. They know it, but they just kind of think, well, maybe it'll go away if I just don't pay attention to it. They know what happens when that gauge just goes down below the E. They still do nothing. Other people are just the opposite. They never go past 3,000 to 5,000 miles to have their oil changed. They never drive the engine hard when it's cold. They always have the necessary fluids checked and changed and filled, and they always buy gas before that little needle gets down to the empty mark. I used to think that the difference between these two kinds of people was a matter of responsibility. Responsible people have their car serviced. Irresponsible people don't. That's not it. And neither is it a question of laziness. You know, some of the most lazy, irresponsible people that I know change their oil every 3,000 or 5,000 miles. But they don't spend time with their kids. They don't take care of their own health. And they don't tend to spiritual matters. But the oil in their car burns clean. Why? Because when it comes to automobile maintenance, they have a deep, solid do something faith. And their actions are totally consistent with what they believe. And you can make that same comparison with computer maintenance or checkbook management, health living, healthy living, and on and on it goes. It comes down to this some people have a belief about something, but they do absolutely nothing about that belief. Others have a stronger, deeper, solid, enlightened belief about something, and that belief drives them to do something that is consistent with what they believe. Actually, when Paul talked about being saved by grace through faith, he was referring to do something faith. Faith that results in corresponding actions. Listen to what he says once again. For by grace you have been saved through faith not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for works. When Paul talks about grace and faith, he says that this kind of faith leads us to doing something, doing the good things that God has called us to do. But then James comes along, and he just helps us understand the whole picture by saying that do-nothing faith can't save you. Paul would say the same thing. In fact, he does over in Romans chapter 2. The faith that saves you, he would say, is faith that results in corresponding action. In fact, this faith will compel you. It doesn't just cause you to feel that way. It will compel you to take action. And I want you to get that little word compel because it's where we're headed in the next point. The right kind of faith, real faith, compels you to do something. Why does the guy who is irresponsible in so many areas in his life take such good care of his car? Because in this one area, he has deep, solid, profound faith in the truth of automobile technology. And he is compelled to act on it. He can't do anything else. In fact, James says in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'm going to show you my faith by my works. Here's what I want you to understand and take with you today. Your deepest and most profound beliefs inevitably will find their way into your behavior. In other words, what you really believe, what you really believe is ultimately going to come out in the way you live your life. If you have dead, do-nothing faith about something, It's not going to affect what you do and the way you live in any way, no matter what you say about it. But, if you have real faith, the right kind of faith, what we call do-something faith, it will lead you to take action that's consistent with what you say you believe. If you believe deeply and profoundly in a do-something kind of way that human suffering and social injustice are wrong. It will lead you. No, it won't just lead you. It will compel you to do something about social injustice. If you believe deeply and profoundly in a do-something kind of way that Jesus Christ has the power to save people from their sins and head your life in the right direction, it will lead you. In fact, it will compel you to share Jesus Christ with others. If you believe deeply and profoundly in a do-something kind of way that God answers prayer, it will compel you to become a person of prayer. In fact, Jesus taught that what you say is a result of where your heart is. In a similar way, what you do is a result of where your faith is. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of your faith, you will act. In fact, over in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, some men brought a paralytic friend of theirs to Jesus to be healed. And it says there in verse 5, When Jesus saw their faith, when he saw their faith, not what they said about it, but when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Now, how did Jesus see their faith? Well, It's as simple as he saw it expressed in their action. He saw it expressed in what they were doing. They brought their friend. They took time, they effort, and brought their friend to Jesus to be healed. And then in just a few uh, years, a few verses later, a sick woman reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment because she knew if she just got that close to him, she would be healed. And Jesus said to her, "Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well." Now, what did her faith cause her to do? Her faith compelled her to reach out to Jesus and demonstrate what was on on the inside. She knew that if she would just reach out to Jesus, he would heal her. And I want to make this crystal clear. Being a Christian is not a matter of you saying, "Okay, I need to do a bunch of good things so that God is going to be pleased with me, so that I'm going to be deserving of receiving His forgiveness, and as a reward, I'll be a Christian and get to go to heaven. No, it doesn't work that way. You are saved by grace through faith. Not of works, So that you can't brag about it. If you want to be a Christian, there's only one thing you can do. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. But friends, that's just the beginning. That's where it starts. That faith that you put in him, and initially it's small or whatever, takes root in your life. And it begins to grow. It begins begins to get bigger and stronger and deeper. And then that faith reveals itself through your actions. The right kind of faith will compel you to do something. So what exactly does this right kind of faith compel you to do? Well, James says in verses 17 and 24, faith without works is dead. And then he said a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So what kind of works is James talking about here? What can we do? How how do we live out our faith? Well, James gives us three examples here, and I want you to get this. And up to this point, it's been kind of theological and dealing with that aspect. But now I want to get practical. I want to get personal. I want to get up close and personal, so to speak. And I want to challenge every one of us here today. And the first kind of genuine faith that's lived out in our lives is compassionate generosity. I want you to say those two words with me, compassionate generosity. Compassionate generosity. Look at verse 16. It's not enough for us to say to someone who is without clothes or food, go, I wish you well, keep warm, and be well fed. James says, if you don't do anything about that need, then what good, what practical good is your faith? Mike Pilavacci put it this way. He said, you can't ignore the poor and worship God at the same time. Think about that. He said, you can't worship God, and not minister to the poor and ignore them. You can't do it at the same time. And if you think, well, he's a little off there, listen to what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3:17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And then in the next verse he says, my little children, Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You know, you hear people make statements like this about those who are less fortunate than they are. My heart goes out to them. My heart goes out to them. Well, you know, I know it's just a saying, but we need to realize that our heart going out to them is not enough. Your hands, your feet, your pocketbook. These need to go out to the poor and the needy as well. It's not enough to feel compassion. We're called to do compassion. In fact, there are over 500 verses in the New Testament alone that speak on social justice and caring for the poor. It's a topic that God takes seriously. How many of you believe that God mentions something 500 times or more? It's probably important to God. And if God says it's important to him, how many of you know it's important to us as well? Absolutely. And you see, this is one of the good works that God is looking for. Oh, it's not a good work that will save you, but, my friends, it's a good work that expresses a genuine faith in in your life. And I want to challenge you today to begin to look for good works that you can do. Simple things, if you're a believer. um, I mean... We could talk about doing some big stuff once you leave the building, but how about just being really nice to someone here today? How about on the way out, you open the door for someone? You let them go first. Or what would happen if you were walking along and happened to see uh, some kind of rapper on a a, uh, church floor? It's really easy to walk by, isn't it, and say, you know, we have a custodian that will take care of that. It's his ministry. I'm helping him out by not picking it up. No. Why not stop and pick it up? Isn't that the way we should operate? I don't think you ever get too big for that. And, and and I've been around so many churches where they have parking spaces, and I love it. They have all these for the guests. They have parking spaces. We ought to have those up close and where it's good for them. But then they have the pastor. It says, Pastor, senior pastor, lead pastor. You know where the senior lead pastor, and I can say this because I'm not going to be here very long. (laughs) He ought to have his out in the back of the parking lot so there's room for others. Not only the senior pastor, but the rest of the staff. Do you catch what I'm saying here? We're called to be servants. And we're called to, to, to reach out. And minister to those who are in need and, and then you can start thinking of ways to really make a difference in your world. I believe that this is what the church is called to do. I, I've thought about it from a, not just a spiritual perspective, but, but from just a, the logistics of the church here. You know, it's kind of interesting. How many of you have discovered that it's hard to find this church the first time you come to this church? How many of you are still trying to find a church? (laughs) You know, we're back in here and so forth. But along with that, it's almost like the church can be just a, a safe haven in here. It's almost like we're in a fort and we're protected. I believe the church needs to break out and make a difference. And we need to not see it as a. the church needs to be a place where we can bring people in who need to be there, where we reach out like that. Secondly, another good work that James mentions is sacrificial obedience. Sacrificial obedience. Look at verses 21 and 22. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was declared right with God because of what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, he was trusting God so much that he was willing to do whatever God told him to do. His faith was made complete by what he did, by his actions. If you've been around the church at all, you you remember this story. When Abraham was an old man, God fulfilled his promise by giving Abraham a son, Isaac. Years later, and we're not really sure how old Isaac was, God told Abraham to take Isaac to the land of Moriah and there sacrifice him on an altar. Man, this must have been just absolutely unimaginable for Abraham, but he did what God asked him to do. Together, he and his son Isaac made their way to the mountain. And as Abraham was preparing to sacrifice his own son, God said, Whoa, do not hurt the boy in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld even your beloved son from me. You know, some people struggle with, with why God would ask Abraham to do such a thing. As if God was playing a cruel game with him. Well, I don't think that's the case at all. Abraham's story symbolizes a lesson for you and for me. It's a lesson that every one of us needs to learn. Abraham knew that God had forbidden murder as well as human sacrifice. And he knew that without Isaac, God's promise about passing on to generation and generation to follow just couldn't take place. God had said, you will have a son of your own to inherit everything I am giving you. So he knew that he needed to have a son. And yet, in spite of this, he, he, he was asked to give up Isaac. Abraham didn't understand why God was doing this or what the outcome was going to be. But he was willing to sacrifice all that he had to please God. He just wanted to obey God. And so whatever God asked him to do, he said, okay, I'll do it. And here's the deal, friends. God is looking for that same kind of commitment, that same level of commitment from you and from me. A willingness to let go of the things that we feel are so precious and let God have control. You see, any time you sacrifice anything for God and His glory, that's a good work. And God is pleased with that. When you sacrifice your money, your time, at times even your sleep, that's a good work. And God is pleased with it. And I can say this with absolute certainty this morning. Abraham was an isolated case. God will not ask you to sacrifice your children like that. However, He might just ask you to sacrifice your golf game for your kids. He might ask you to sacrifice some TV time to help someone out who's going through a difficult time right there. James says that faith without works is dead. And the work that God is looking for from us is sacrificial obedience, giving what is precious to us back to God. And another good work that James mentions is the uncalculated risk. An uncalculated risk. Look at verse 25. And there he says, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And James is referring to that time when Joshua sent a couple of his soldiers as spies into Jericho to find out what the lay of the land was like. The men stayed at the home of Rahab, the prostitute, which may sound a bit suspicious at first, but in those days brothels were basically inns, kind of a Motel 6 situation. And the king of Jericho heard that these men were there, and so he sent orders to Rahab to bring them out to him. Rahab risked her life by telling the king's men that no, they left earlier that day, and she hid the men up on a roof. The king's men left, and Rahab basically said to the spies, Okay, I helped you out. I literally saved your life. And I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God is going to give you this city, so I'm asking you to be kind to me and to my family and let us live. A businessman would say that Rahab should have negotiated a deal before she made that commitment before she put her life on the line for those spies. At this point, they could have easily said, yeah, well, thanks, we'll pray about the situation, but we can't promise you anything. Good luck, we'll see you later. Rahab took a risk in doing the right thing, and she did it without a deal in place. She did it because she had come to believe that the God of the Israelites was the one true God. And listen to what she said, For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And she took a risk, a rather uncalculated risk, that she would be saved. And sure enough, when the Israelites took the city of Jericho, Rahab and her family were spared, and she became a part of their new community. She later married a a man by the name of Solomon. And she became the great-great-grandmother of King David and and an ancestor to Jesus, the Messiah. This happened because she was willing to take a bold risk for some men who simply needed her help. And here's how you can apply this idea of taking a risk in your life. There are going to be times when you may be called to risk your own safety, or less dramatically... Your own comfort for the benefit of someone else. And you might not get anything in return for it. You just do it because it's the right thing to do. Dawson Trotman. Maybe some of you have heard him, of him. He was a founder of Navigators, a, a great discipleship ministry for over the years. Literally had tens of thousands of people trained in discipleship and, and then discipling others as well. But do you know how he died? He saved a young girl from drowning. He was at Shroon Lake in New York, and he was there with family and friends, and they heard a girl screaming she was in the lake, and he immediately took off. He could have said, I'm an important spiritual leader. I mean, the world needs me, the church needs me, my ministry needs me. Let someone else do it. Instead, he responded to her danger, and he dove in. And he put his life on the line. He jumped into the water, she was saved, and he was not. That's the kind of uncalculated risk that followers of Jesus are expected to make. These good works don't save you. Absolutely not. But they do reveal the nature of your faith. And then James wraps it up in verse 26 and says, For as a body without the spirit is dead, so faith... Without works is dead also. And Jesus is calling every one of us here today to a do-something kind of faith. Do you know what that means? It means that you need to decide what you really believe. You need to decide, this is what I really believe, in, then decide what you're going to do about it. Think that one through. You need to say it. This is what I really believe, and because I really believe, I'm going to do this. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and your life totally belongs to Him? Then what are you going to do about it? How are you going to live that out in your life? Do you really believe that He has called you to minister to others, to the poor, to the helpless, to the disenfranchised? Then what are you going to do about it? Do you really believe that God answers prayer? If you really believe, what are you going to do about it? I love Nike. Their their theme for years was, just do it. Don't sit around and talk about it. Don't sit around the table and just discuss. Yeah, get it worked out, but then just do it. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, in the... The closing moments of our time together, if we've listened at all this morning, if we've thought at all, if we've heard your word at all, we realize that, yes, we, we do have some do-something faiths in our life, and we do have some do-nothing areas as well. And we thank you that you're not a God who ever condemns us, but you do convict us. And so today I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us in some of those areas that we've thought about, that we say, man, I really believe in that, but we've just let flounder around. And maybe this morning you're calling some of us to do something about what we say we believe. I have no idea what that means for each and every person here, but I do know this beyond a shadow of a doubt, Lord. You have a plan for each person. So I pray right now that you would help us to just decide what we really believe in. And then decide what we're going to do about it. And for the next few minutes, as we just respond to you, Holy Spirit, just come and fill this place with your presence, with your power but also with your purpose and direction. Lord, I thank you that you're a God who doesn't just deal in generalities, but specifics. And so I pray that you would specifically speak to each and every one of us, right where we are, and what you are calling us to do today. And we're going to claim victory, and we're going to claim your wisdom and your direction right now.